Welcome to Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. This podcast is a collection of historical and philosophical references, contemplations, lectures, and exchanges with David M. Valadez, his students, and guests. Podcasts are recorded on the mat at the Ascension Center in Southern California and in studio. These podcasts are provided to cultivate the warrior on the way and to add light to their path. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the third podcast I've been able to get out for this week. Um, this one is going to be based upon two blog entries I did. They're very similar, uh, and they raise the same issues. I'm going to read them, but uh, as I've done before, I'm going to elaborate. I realize there's some some audience members who... Uh, don't want to read things, uh, especially long things. Um, our culture is moving that way, unfortunately. So toward that end, I recommend that you take the time um, and don't give up your reading skills. A lot of studies have come out on how important it is to continue to work and develop that side of our brains. So get in there and read those blogs. Take some time, read some books. We're always recommending books on our Facebook page. Um, do it. Make it part of your training, part of your practice. The two blog entries uh, raise the issue of Aikido, martial viability, self-defense, etc. And, of course, that might... A listener might go, you know, not my thing. I'm into Aikido for something else. Um, but you're going to see that my perspective overall does not really draw a distinction, let alone an oppositional one, between uh, Aikido's martial viability and Aikido's spiritual viability. They go hand in hand for me. And if you find yourself in one camp or another, this opinion of them going hand-in-hand, hand, not being dichotomous, let alone oppositional to each other, might be of interest to you nonetheless, because it's a different view from yours. Um, let's just start. So I received a question on Facebook regarding a knife video that I put out. And let me give you the context for the knife video, first of all. Um, what we do in our dojo is we do uh, a lot of knife training. Uh, it does eventually lead to what anybody would, would agree upon is a practical use of the knife as a weapon. But the means that we get there is, is quite different from what most people are used to. And because the means is different, or, or rather the means is different because we also look to achieve many other things other than that end I mentioned. Uh, one of the early things that we tend to focus in on with the knife is the continuous motion uh, that the knife helps the practitioner gain. If you look at a lot of Aikido Kihonwaza, it's very stop and go. Um, 
there's many reasons for this. They all have to do with uh, undeveloped skill, ultimately. But they are, it is so commonly accepted, uh, even in our demonstrations, as we're watching Kihon Waza be performed, um, where I would hold the opposite view. Uh, the my of a technique is very much part of a Kihon Waza, and my refers both to a harmonious time space, not just to a harmonious space, and a timing that is staccato, noted by pauses or stopping, is a violation of my. Again, no distinction between the martial and the spiritual. Uh, martially, that violation of my uh, just does not function because one of the rules of any fight is that it moves, and it moves at what I call the speed of life, and it is quite contrary to any kind of staccato-like movement. Uh, you do staccato-like movement, and that is an opening as good as any opening generated by a violation of the spatial component of my. So you don't want that. Spiritually, the body that stops is reflecting the mind that is attached and the spiritually mature mind does not abide in attachment or in fettering. So we problematize very early on any kind of staccato movement. And the knife helps the beginner uh, keep things moving, uh, which very early on we, we use a maximum of, of sorts when taken from my karate training that goes like this. Uh, where the circle ends, the line begins, and where the line ends, the circle begins. That kind of comes naturally to people who might want to stop due to being out of balance or have inappropriate weight distribution or a mind that is prone to fettering. Uh, it comes more naturally to them because they can all imagine uh, that for the knife to function, it has to actually cut, meaning it has to keep moving. Um, the techniques themselves are all designed based upon that maxim as well. The second thing the knife does for the beginner is it tempts the beginner uh, with, especially in knife defense, with that fettering mind and therefore with a defense or a response that is staccato-like and therefore a violation of my, it tempts them to become attached and fettered because the knife, even a training knife, is kind of scary to people training today, at least in um, modern Santa Barbara, California. People who have for a long time many decades, if not a century or more, um, been raised in a culture that uh, violence is a specialized activity meant for specialized folks, meaning not for them, not for everyone. Uh, it's scary. It captures their mind. And with that temptation comes the chance of cultivating oneself otherwise, not to have a mind that stops. So in the video... Um, we're working with that stuff, those two things. And for those who can in our dojo, because you have the problem of something that is constantly moving, 
the internal aspects of the art are also made more necessary and thus the training itself becomes a possible cultivation field for those internal aspects, those being Aiki and Kokyu. Uh, to stay with the knife, you can't always uh, follow the knife. You, you can occasionally, but you cannot always. Uh, sometimes um, you're going to have to have the knife stick to you. Uh, that is Aiki. And if you do, um, if you are able to follow the knife, it is much easier to follow a knife that is also in somewhat of a sticky relationship with your contact point. So that's what we were doing with the knife. Um, we're not violating a long-standing premise already discussed, in my view, that uh, Kihon Waza is not self-defense training. However, somebody watching that, working from the point of view of the modern understanding of martial arts, you see some people training, uh, you think knife attack, knife defense, and this is very incorrect. We received a question from that point of view. It, the question was this, Sensei, can you demo this type of response to a jailhouse, in quotation marks, type of knife attack. What you're doing here is once again dynamic and beautiful, but it's for the sim singular big movement knife attack. Yes, right? Uh, I'd love to study your response to the rapid fire style knife attack. And here is my answer. Yes, it is a technique for the passable knife. Um, as for the jailhouse attack, the short answer is no. So for those who don't know um, what most people refer to as the jailhouse type of knife attack is a kind of uh, repeated thrusting over and over, similar or analogous to the way a sewing machine works. Um, with very little commitment, very little overpenetration, uh, just hitting the target multiple times as fast as you can. Uh, you can see here I already drew a distinction and I wish to talk about the two different knife attacks um, structurally and not culturally, so I don't see it as a jailhouse uh, knife attack. One is passable and one is not passable. In answering no, however, one has to put aside for the moment the fact that this waza is not a self-defense application, but rather like all waza, a drill in which and by which one cultivates sought-after skills, skills that can then go on to be used martially as required by incident, environment, and desired end. So putting this huge fact aside, the answer is no, because this technique uses a knife-passing tactic, one that passes the knife along the original line of attack. Such a passing tactic cannot and should not be used when there is no knife to pass. In the jailhouse type of attack, due to the weaponry being used and the mission being adopted, the attack has a different degree of penetration and is thus less matched by a passing tactic. More on this later. One has to do something else. 
one has to do something else because the attack is something else. Let me pause there. Behind what I am saying is something that often goes unreflected upon by Aikidoka. And it is what is also at the heart of questions uh, or answers for what is Aikido, does Aikido work, etc. And this behind-the-scenes assumption, in my opinion, is very, very incorrect. The idea here is it, it works like this, and at first glance it makes sense. It, let's just stick with the question, does Aikido work? This is a very popular question, especially if you look at uh, views that raise that question, on videos that raise that question. Um, if you go a little deeper and you just want to do a kind of socio-slash-anthropological investigation or even a discursive, a discursive investigation into what makes that question possible, what you're going to see is an arbitrary and superficial definition for what is Aikido. In particular, what goes without saying is uh, that Aikido means the Aikikai or similar institutional arbitrarily decided upon set of techniques. And this is problematic for multiple reasons. Um, the first one is that the art historically um, only recently came to be understood as this curriculum. Um, in the adopting or in the formatting of this curriculum, there is no evidence whatsoever that that curriculum was meant to be definitive of the art um, or that those techniques in and of themselves were ever meant to do anything martially such as address a minimum of two different types of knife attacks. In essence, historically, there really is no reason to come to define the art by, the, by that curriculum. Uh, what people don't realize is they made a jump in logic when they say, uh, does Aikido work? They are actually saying, uh, does the Aikikai Kihon Waza work? And then they later go on to define work. Um, that's a really silly question. Um, again, for historical reasons, uh, we know that the founder did not think of the art as technique-based. Um, we have statements where he talked about uh, the techniques being infinite in number. Everyone knows that. Um, we also have uh, his statements that the importance of yin and yang and that the art represents the universe and uh, therefore as much as the art is defined by that kind of curriculum, 
it is equally definable by another uh, curriculum which we might want to see as uh, complementary or supplementary or even oppositional because of yin-yang theory. Um, that is a lot. That is quite difficult for a lot of modern institutionalized Aikidoka to understand, but uh, we can see this in the founder's own practice where he took this or that um, and what he held between them as a common thread uh, was not his collection of techniques, but rather uh, who he was, uh, which was uh, how he did his art. So the common thread uh, was possible because of how he operated at the level of being and at the level of understanding his martial practice. And it just seems, it, it is, if we follow the history of the art and we hold the founder as central uh, to our understanding of history when it comes to defining our art, we are more in alignment if we find our common thread or our conceptual thread uh, that expands to all types of martial manifestations, that we don't just arbitrarily adopt uh, institutional format that's been handed down to us, uh, more for economic reasons than for anything else. If you get that far, then you would just n you would you'd rather ask this question. You'd rather ask uh, not does Aikido uh, work, uh, but give whatever you want to see, uh, and then say what would the Aikido solution be uh, towards this. Um, a lot of people believe they're doing that, but all they end up doing is either one of the Kihon Wazas or saying it doesn't work. Um, that's, n that's a misunderstanding again. That's the same misunderstanding at the fundamental level. Um, if you have the conceptual framework, you'll understand yin and yang. Uh, you would have your answer, and it might not look anything like a Kihon Waza, uh, at the level of manifestation, but at the level of concept, it is very much just an extension uh, of all that is the art, the universe, infinity. So that's what I'm kind of doing here. Uh, one is a knife that is passable, and one is a knife that is not passable. And to to pass a knife that is not passable is not Aikido. It is outside of the conceptual framework of a harmonization of yin and yang. So you'd have to do something else. And that answer should be obvious to us. The answer should not be, oh no, you can do uh, kotegaesh on an unpassable knife. And just equally, you should not say, no, Aikido does not have a technique, a tactical response to the unpassable knife. These are both incorrect. Going on. This idea of matching tactics, of there not being one tactic for all attacks, should not be foreign to us as Aikidoka. 
after all, expanding upon a common maxim of Japanese jiu-jitsu, O-sensei told us, when pushed, turn, or tenkan. When pulled, enter, or irimi. What does this maxim teach us? It tells us several things, but they all work from the truth that there is not one tactic for all attacks. For example, the maxim tells us that we should not turn when pulled and that we should not enter when pushed. It tells us that there is a difference between pushing and pulling attacks. It tells us we should not hold that there is one tactic for all attacks, etc. While we moderns today might consider this common sense, the ancients saw this as an application of yin-yang theory. This was a truth at a cosmological level. And when we come to Osensei's art, going back to this, uh, this is how he could talk about the art being infin infinite in its manifestations or being the universe. Uh, it wasn't one thing at the cost of another. It was constantly about harmonizing yin and yang energies, reconciling yin and yang energies. Uh, and any way you do that, uh, in from at least if you understand the way that O-sensei was adopting this from that art, that from that art, etc., etc., uh, can be considered Aikido. Equally or inversely, any art, any, any technical manifestation, let's say even Ikkyo itself, that does not reconcile yin and yang energies, even if you're inside a Nike Kai institution practicing that technique, any ikkyo that does not reconcile yin and yang energies is not Aikido. Are we ready to say that one now? Most of us are not. Going on. Colloquially speaking, the ancients knew that there was that there were different things in the world. And they knew that certain things went with certain other things. They knew there was not one thing. And they knew that not everything goes with everything. Again, putting aside for the moment the huge fact that the video is demonstrating a drill, a waza, and that it is not a martial application or a self-defense technique, and not attributing this position to you at all, the person that asked the question, I would like to point out the following. Folks that see a video and what if it, or what about it, ad absurdum, seem totally ignorant of this simple truth and this basic application of yin-yang theory, both of which lie, lay at the heart of the art. I understand that your query is coming from a position of sincere curiosity, but these other so-called martial artists that play this game must either not train, or not train much, or train with no professional or practical end in mind, and nor have experience to that effect. For everyone that does knows that jabs and crosses are treated differently as are tackles and headbutts, as are single opponents and multiple opponents, etc. Again, if we don't go deeper, and we just look at the surface, if we just look at the material construct, ikkyo, nikkyo, sankyo, etc., if we don't get to the conceptual thread, this harmonization or reconciliation of yin and yang, 
you can be doing what is an Aikikai Kihonwaza curriculum and still not be doing Aikido. And we even have that said by the founder, a well-known quote, where he chastised Deshi. He's like, I don't know what you guys are doing, but it's not my art. Again, it's not reconciling yin and yang going on. Please allow me here now to use your question as a springboard for discussing other related matters. Again, I in no way am attributing this problematic view mentioned below to you. I'm merely using your question to raise several matters I feel you may find interesting or worthy of contemplation. The following positions are born out of 37 years of martial arts training in multiple disciplines, several having competition formats, boxing, wrestling, karate, BJJ, etc., multiple weapon systems, stick, baton, knife, handgun, rifle, shotgun, etc., a decade or so of racial and territorial street fighting as a youth, and 15 years of law enforcement duty, where I served as a patrol deputy, a custody deputy, a detective, and I'm currently assigned to our department's training bureau, <clears throat> plus 12 years of higher education, BA, MA, PhD in Japanese history and Japanese religious culture. I turned 55 years old this year. In this personal history, I faced an aggressor with a bladed weapon three times. One was on duty and two were not. In two cases, one of which was on duty, I disarmed the aggressor. In the remaining incident, I fought the archer and not the arrow, an old Roman legion maxim. People tend to stop fighting and stop holding on to things after a koshinage with no mat at the bottom to receive them. Stop there. What brought me to talk about these things beyond what the questioner asked is this growing trend in Aikido um, that I see as an extension of its martial and spiritual crisis. The crisis is actually derived from the impotency of the art's current technologies to bring or meant to bring transformation. They're impotent because we are uncritical of them. They are non-functioning and we have accepted them as functioning. A result of this crisis is that we've had to come and redefine the art as we realize it cannot do the things we thought it could or that we uh, first told ourselves it would. Uh, one of those is combat or fighting or self-defense. And it's become very popular for people to now redefine the art um, such that they drop the self-defense aspect. It is actually quite an interesting history because of how fast this happened. It was probably not even a hundred years ago where the self-defense component of the art was well understood to be a part of the art. But today, 
it is gaining ground that it is not meant to function nor does it function in this capacity. At the tip of the spear of this movement is the knife. For many, especially, and or even so, high-ranking Aikidoka, uh, the attempt to do things with the knife, for the knife, against the knife, is not only not part of the training, and far from the apex of the training, but in some way is irresponsible training, uh, something to be frowned upon and to um, be rallied against. The martial thing, which is strange, because you would think if they just give it up, um, they would give up martiality entirely. But even among those who want to be martial, the martial thing for them is to do nothing or to run. Um, again, going back under a hundred years, uh, running and doing nothing um, requires no martial training at all, let alone in Aikido. We have to go into this a bit more. I like to use my distinction between social and asocial violence. Um, I would agree, social violence. Uh, this is this is violence that uh, att attempts to uh, play itself out for social ends. Uh, your ego duel does this. Uh, your schoolyard fight, etc., does this kind of stuff. I contrast it with asocial violence, which is an, a, a complete subversion of all social rules um, marked in either a, a complete devaluing of human life, the sacrality of life, uh, the sacrality of individual's right to life, and what amounts to uh, the simple equation of I kill you or you kill me. It is rare that a knife is brought out into social violence uh, because of its irreversibility in terms of its effects. Um, it tends to be brought out more in social violence and is of such an instrument that when it is introduced you have uh, you will have crossed the realm had you been in social violence now into a social violence uh, toward that end there are certain things that go with a social violence because of its predatory nature uh, these things have long been associated with uh, combative victory, and they are about increasing the odds uh, in favor of the predator, um, or by default in mitigating the risk of having the predator lose their life as a result of their predation. Uh, these things are um, surprise, violence of action, 
and speed of action. And when it comes to applying these concepts tactically, um, one of the major components here is ambush. It is very difficult to run from an ambush. Usually running only gets you further in the ambush. There, ha there has to be some sort of uh, limited engagement prior to any kind of tactical repositioning. An example of this would be like a bounding technique that a squad might use uh, to get from the kill zone and get out to a green zone. So if we all run uh, for cover, uh, we'll probably lose more people. But if some people can start laying down fire while others reposition themselves to where they can start laying down fire and then the preceding unit would then bound to another location, tactically repositioning to lay down fire as the other group could then bound again back out or into the green zone. That is much more successful. So something like this on a one-on-one -on -one basis, if you pictured it, might be a knife pass. So you pass the first knife, uh, the first knife attempt, and now you can, because the person is heading a certain way, which would ideally be a different way from how you are running, to uh, tactically reposition, which does include escaping altogether. Um, or a knife pass that generates uh, a kazushi, and you add that to this angle of deflection. Uh, you now have them going the other way while they're off balance. All this gives you time to flee if you want, but also time to draw uh, a superior weapon or your own weapon should you not have any kind of extraction route open to you. The other thing, uh, some of us might have a professional end, I, I being one. Um, usually the running away is not an option if you are responsible for the uh, health and safety of another person. Um, and so you might have, due to that larger duty, a duty to mitigate the risk yourself. Um, so on these just two examples, in the first case, running is probably the worst thing you could do if it's, you're talking about zero engagement. And then two, you might not have that as an option. Uh, and then you're left with the other martial question. What could you do uh, with an Aikido conceptual framework or Aikido conceptual thread for the knife attack? That's the interesting question. Um, as a side note, I find something very interesting with the running concept. Um, usually you're told you can run, you, you should run because you're martially inferior to the other person. Um, that's why you should run. But I always find it of interest of 
how I'm martially inferior to the other person, but uh, they cannot run me down and stab me nonetheless. Uh, the whole point of the martial arts, due to things like uh, leverage mechanics and as well as the internal aspects of the art, which increases one's work output or force output, um, the whole point of these things is that through these things you can gain a uh, higher work output than the opponent. Uh, straight blast running is just raw athleticism. So if this person's bigger, stronger than me, they're probably faster than me too, uh, and they have uh, as easy a time, if not easier, uh, running me down and dispatching me as they wish. This does not make sense. We want something instead. We want to keep our martial history. We want to tackle these questions. We want to find the conceptual thread that answers them. I think uh, you'd want that even on top of the early beginner elements I told you we in our dojo use knife training for, how to find and keep and gain continuous motion and how to have the unfettered mind and how to detach from our fear. Continuing. In all that time and in all those different venues, I never trained in or with if-then modalities, meaning I have never trained within a paradigm that holds there is a one-to-one -one relationship between an attack and a defense. And that's what the, is at the heart of these questions. Like, what would you do for that? Or does it work for that, do you see? Uh, it's all assuming um, that you'll have this one answer that you get to use. So there's one answer for the knife. It's a kotagayashi. You know, no. Not true at all. Again, it's a yin-yang theory, and yin-yang can be reconciled any infinite number of ways. The only people I've ever seen do this or think this are brand new beginners. Aikidoka and social media types that do not train or do not have a practical end or experiential end to their training. Everyone else trains in skill sets using drills or micro drills, or at least for the most part, with scenario based training being used to monitor other skills like mindset, decision making, conditioning, etc. They know no technical skill can be truly born in the environment designed to test for whether or not said skill is present. This is why boxers, for example, shadow box, do mitt work, bag work, etc. And why when they spar, it is very controlled, slowed down, and ruled governed while making use of extra productive equipment. This is why boxers do not fight all the time as the primary means of becoming more skilled. It is also why you see the same use of drills and micro drills in football training and why teams do not scrimmage all the time or just play games. Here I'm 
addressing another assumption in Aikido circles meant to address the question, does Aikido work, meant to address the crisis of Aikido martiality. And it is this notion that uh, forms, forms are the problem of um, why we're in this crisis and what we need to do is just spar. There is some truth to this, in, but it's a different truth. There is some truth in that forms training um, is actually an obstacle to spontaneity. Uh, the pre-moderns, however, figured this out uh, because they were knowingly and wisely after a spontaneity of a particular kind. Uh, a spontaneity of any kind is just chaos, and chaos is the opposite of yin and yang. Yin and yang are the birth of order and the maintenance of order. Uh, so in order to get a designated spontaneity, you're going to need forms training. However, forms training is itself ultimately an obstacle to a transcendence of form. In some ways, forms sets up the problem, and as the problem is set up, the solution is made manifest. And this is very classically yin-yang theory. Um, but as a practitioner, you have to go through both this form problem and then this transcendence of form. And this is where the shuhari um, training modalities come from. That is exactly what they're meant to do. Uh, the idea of just starting with ri is not Japanese budo, not Aikido, not anything you would ever want. Okay, As I said, Nobody does that except people who don't know any better. Um, what you have when you just do sparring is what I called chaos, is you just have survival mode is what they go through. And a lot of people consider this real training because you practice surviving. Um, but it is very, very um, arbitrary in how they decide who survives and who doesn't. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily transfer over into gaining any of those mechanical advantages that I aforementioned. You really need a spontaneity uh, of a particular kind. That is what the pre-moderns were after. You can't just spar. But you, and that means, too, you can't just ignore your techniques, your drills, your ritualized movement going on. Many Aikidoka do not understand these training laws, and social media folks that do not train understand these laws even less. It is by this ignorance that you find people that do not train or that are rel relatively very unskilled telling a trained knife fighter who has disarmed people in real life that this drill or that drill would not work against the trained knife fighter and that the only practical thing we should do is run away. Allow me to expand upon this. Imagine there was a man, a husband, a father, and he felt his moods were very conditional to outside or worldly stimuli. He was very reactionary to the news in the world, to how things went at work, to how he thought people thought about him, to what he imagined they were saying about him to each other, 
etc. Sometimes he would come home very on edge, sometimes angry, sometimes depressed, and depending upon how he felt, which was depending upon what of the world he was experiencing, he treated his wife and children very poorly. As a result, he made his family very on edge, for they knew not if he was going to be sad or angry or kind that evening when he returned home from work. He knew his familial relationships were disintegrating, and he knew it was him that was disintegrating them, and he knew he was disintegrating them because he had made himself and the world one, where he reified the world and the world reified him. But a part of him also knew that he was not the world and that the world was not him. Yet, he just could not figure out how to live that truth, and so he couldn't figure out how to get along with his family and how to keep his relationships with his wife and with his children meaningful, loving, and positive. And this is what he wanted most. He wanted to learn how to have a meaningful, loving, and positive relationship with his family members. So he goes to a Zen priest for counseling and direction, for he heard Zen has a great philosophy for how to make one's way in the world, for being in the world but not of the world. However, the priest talks not to him at all and instead has him sit on a cushion, silent and still, and to do it over and over and over again and for great lengths of time. Imagine if we video recorded the man sitting on the cushion in silence and stillness and we, and we posted the video in the Aikido Facebook group. Upon seeing it, we would see the social media trolls saying, sitting and staying still cannot be used in real life. That is so fake. Like your wife is just going to let you stop moving and not expect you to answer her when she's asking you a question, letting you just stay silent? When can you sit still and be silent in real life? These trolls do not know what the Zen priest knows. One, no relational technique, no communication technique, no familial management system, etc. can bring a meaningful loving, and positive end, or even be fully utilized until the ego is reconciled. And two, when the ego is reconciled, we are no longer reactionary or reactive to the world. In a way, what Zen is saying is this. Dude, if you can't reconcile the ego when all you have to do is sit on a cushion and remain still and silent, you sure as hell aren't going to be able to do it when your boss is writing you and your kids are sick and your wife has a honey-to list three pages long for you. Meaning, the cushion is a ritualized, that is a rule-governed and simplified training venue designed to cultivate essential skills, essential skills that one then goes on to use as a part or even as the core of a real-life application. Kihon Waza is no different. Here in this video, the sought-after beginner skills being drilled and cultivated are these. A coordination of angle of deflection, angle of attack, and angle of deviation. Aiki adhesion, trapping mechanics, 
and strategy, non-contestation strategies, angle of cancellation, positions of disadvantage, height checks, weapon prying mechanics, fluidity of mind and body, release and non-attachment to the weapon, unifying armed and unarmed tactics, etc. All of these are just skills. Will you need them in a martial application or in a decided-upon response to a knife attack? Yes, indeed you will, regardless of whatever shape that application takes. However, the vessel by which they are cultivated is not the martial application, nor is it a martial response. The social media troll that does not train or that does not really have a practical or experiential end in mind might want to ask here, why don't you develop skills in actual responses then? But here, they have only brought us full circle to why boxers do not fight all the time and why football teams do not just play games and why Zen priests will make us sit in silence and stillness. Why not? Answer, they say. Because it is, it is an inefficient way of training. Why? And here's the rule. Because the venue that requires the skill the most cultivates the skill the least. This is key. Our kihonwaza are rituals. They assume an embodied level or an embodied type of consciousness. It is the conceptual thread through all of Kihonwaza and beyond all of Kihonwaza. It is the conceptual thread by which a boxing technique can become an Aikido technique. But in Kihonwaza, it is a ritual purified through countless reps where it is reduced to its bare essentials. And it's done so for the purposes of allowing the cultivation of the embodied consciousness or the manifestation or the embodying of the conceptual thread to actually be possible. To open it up to a fighting environment is to complicate the training venue. And to complicate the training venue means the results yielded will be reduced. Yes, you need sparring. Yes, a boxer spars, but that is not all they do. And on all they do, like shadow boxing, they're not fighting. They're drilling. They're working basics. Basics that go on or could go on to be applied within a fighting environment. Continuing. 
There's more, though. Why don't real people doing real things with their arts use if-then, one-to-one scenario-based training, a predominance of the time? That's a question that a lot of social media wants to ask and expect. Because the application of a tactic or a technique under real-life conditions has little to do with the structure of the technique itself. The application of a technique in real life has more to do with the player's ability to be free from technique than it has to do with the technique itself. This is why doing waza, any waza, even a martially practical waza, no matter how much you do it, will never lead to being able to do that waza spontaneously within real-life conditions. It is delusion to hold that if we do something over and over again with our body, uh, we will somehow recognize it instinctually when the conditions for that something arises and thus implement that something accordingly. This does not happen, especially under real-life human-versus-human violent encounters. In truth, such applications occur through training meant to cultivate a metacognition in the player, a metacognition that monitors the player for attachment to technique and through a skill of releasing mind and body from what they were metacognitively observed to be attached. Again, no waza can ever do this, not any waza. In fact, all waza is an obstacle to these primary skills necessary for real-life application. So let me go into this. This is what I was talking about when I said, ultimately, all form is an obstacle to the transcendence of form. This is what is at the heart of Shu Hadi. So the idea that you can practice this practical form and then you're going to stick it inside a real-life actual incident is psychologically or psychophysiologically totally untrue. And again, anybody who actually spars or fights or defends life knows that's the case. Only people who don't know, don't do those things think this is possible. I was watching John Danaher. It was an interview with him. And as anyone knows, he is very, a very technical coach. Uh, extremely, I would say uh, there's no other coach more technical than him in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. But in the interview, he points out what pre-moderns knew all along. He's like, I can show you exactly how these techniques work. I can show you uh, why they work and how they work, but you will never be able to apply one of them uh, just from that. We can see this, too, in the way uh, the Gracie um, business model has changed. And I'm bringing this up because a lot of people will, a lot of people will grant that BJJ is very practical. Um, and what I'm telling you here is practicality is not actually born in the technique. So the business model uh, early on in Gracie BJJ 
was sparring oriented. So you spar, you learn, you would learn some techniques, and then uh, somewhere either halfway through the class, definitely by the end of the class, you would be let loose and you would go try these things. Um, and this is a the way that it was traditionally always done. Okay, you you would learn a form, and then you, in your own uh, immense uh, human alchemy, would discover. Uh, how to let go of form and transcend form, and therefore how to do form under speed of life conditions. Uh, the downside is that uh, because half of your training time actually requires that you already know how to do that, the results are not that great. And when you're trying to make money, you're going to lose a lot more people uh, than if you slowed this down and concentrated and got a base under people, a base at which they could start functioning at uh, some level of metacognition, meaning uh, they could kind of monitor what they were doing as they were doing it. Uh, but early on, you don't have the metacognition when you're learning a form. You're like foot here, foot there. Uh, you're not kind of hovering over yourself, watching yourself as you're doing it, mentally speaking. So the business model has adapted itself uh, to increase the number of people that are successful at this. So now you have to be of a certain rank, which many consider, uh, which at least in the past, was relatively high uh, before you start going into these live training environments. Um, even when you do go into these live training environments, uh, the people who get the most out of them are the people that are still functioning um, not in these all-out combat uh, senses of practice, but more in uh, very rule-governed. So, hey, we're going to go slow. Hey, uh, we're not going to sit here and overpower each other. We're going to look for the openings. Uh, we're going to set up our dilemmas. And it is that way that you actually get your skill to evolve. Let's go on. Again, there's more when it comes to real-life applications. There are other things that are extremely determinant when it comes to whether or not a technique works or not. More determinant than the technique itself. And what I mean to address here is the so-called practicality in the technique via this if-then model, this one-to-one -one self-defense model, uh, this complete ignoring of the psychophysiological fact that form is actually an obstacle to the transcendence of form. There are other things having nothing to do with whatever technique you're doing that are way more determinant on whether you succeed uh, martially or not. These are, I'm going to list some of them, lifestyle, physical conditioning, mindset, awareness, decision-making skills, and pre-incident strategies. Lifestyles, for example, work like this. Live a crime-free life, won't get sentenced to a custodial facility, won't get shanked with a jailhouse knife technique. Or be centered enough and self-sufficient enough um, that you do not cower from the world nor need any distance from reality for the sake of comfort or pleasure. Won't use alcohol as a mood inhibitor. Won't frequent bars. 
won't get in bar fights. Lifestyle also goes towards physical conditioning, and physical conditioning goes towards fitness and mobility and to strength. Weak, stiff, overweight people, people that are not mobile, people that have a hard time changing height levels or directions, these are people that will have a, that will have a hard time getting any technique to work. Lifestyle also goes to armament. I think if one's everyday carry does not include a handgun and a knife or two, and if empty hand tactics are not fully integrated with these arms, one cannot really be serious about self-defense. One should not talk about self-defense then. I'll stop there. Um, again, if you want to talk about self-defense, you're talking to me about asocial violence. You're not talking about social violence. Uh, you don't want to get in social violence? Hey, live a better life. Be a more likable, more centered, more spiritually mature, emotionally intelligent person. Won't get in social violence. So we're talking about asocial violence. And if we're talking about asocial violence and you're serious about self-defense, we're talking about weapons. And the weapons you're looking for are weapons of portability and concealability. And that means handgun and knives. I had one person say, that's a ridiculous point. Again, I would say, you're not very serious about self-defense then. You were talking about social violence. Going on. Mindset. Mindset goes toward the determination to complete one's mission or desired for end. It is about commitment, discipline, and sacrifice. And depending upon one's mission, these things mean a commitment to die, the discipline to die, and the willingness to die as much as they mean a commitment to kill, the discipline to kill, and the willingness to kill. Awareness in martial conditions is the keeping of complacency at bay. It is the seeing up and down of the timeline and the causal chain. It is the seeing of the whole chessboard at all times. Decision-making is the ability to maintain cognition under extreme stress, such that one is at all times able to tap into one's wisdom tradition, one's training, and the means of advantage, in other words, strategy. Pre-incident strategy is the stacking of the deck in one's favor before the incident even began. It is the seeking and gaining of advantage prior to any tactical application. These things, and much more, are much more determinant toward the establishing of victory over an adversary than the tactic or the technique used to do so. In law enforcement, we talk about uh, what is called patrol strategy. Um, your tactic might be how you do it, what, what you're doing, okay? So let us say, for example, um, here's a, just a very, very simple example. Um, and I'll, I'll give it to you to the uh, new, new uh, from the point of view of the new recruit, okay? For whatever reason, um, the recruits are taught how to handcuff somebody 
while they're standing in a law enforcement academy. Um, what you learn very quickly on the job is the person that is standing, well, let's go back. What you learn is that most assaults on law enforcement officers happen at the handcuffing moment. There are obvious reasons for this. One, you're in range to be handcuffed, and two, uh, the person gains a huge amount of disadvantage when their hands are handcuffed behind their back. So if you're going to act, that's the time. If you're going to draw a weapon, that's the time, etc. You don't know that in the academy. You, you have to learn it. You're going to get punched in the face. You learn it. Um, they're going to get a weapon out and this elevated in terms of use of force uh, where it could have been um, solved earlier on. Uh, maybe you have a senior officer or a training officer who already learned it and chastises you uh, for putting everyone at risk because you did not deal with how mobile and how much fightability a standing handcuffed person has at the moment of arrest. So you learn. And what do you learn? You learn what we call a position of disadvantage. A position of disadvantage is the placing or the keeping of a person uh, in a position that is the most antithet antithetical to their offensive uh, maximum potential. Okay, so uh, somebody, a human by uh, bipedal uh, humanoid, their maximum fightability is going to be standing. So, yes, this is why you do not handcuff someone who is standing when most of their fights or assaults are happening at the moment of handcuffing. The two don't go together. So, what you do instead is somewhere before you even got... Uh, into arrest mode, you had asked this person to either sit down um, on the ground or sit down in this chair or something. Well, what you're doing is you're moving them away from that maximum fightability, the standing position. Um, it is not uncommon at this time that a relatively new officer, having learned, hey, uh, have them sit down, um, if you think there might be an arrest at the end of this, have them sit down. You know, especially early on, you can ask a lot of people, hey, do me a favor, will you, sir, will you have a seat right there? And they'll sit down. Uh, that, too, that, that cordiality, that building of rapport, the way you ask it, the maintaining of dignity, all goes to your pre-incident strategies, okay? Making your ultimate handcuff technique that much more successful. So you ask them to do that, and a recruit will basically learn that real, you know, real soon, relatively speaking. But it's not uncommon that when it comes time to put handcuffs on them, they will ask this person, hey, uh, can you go ahead and stand up and turn around? Because they go back to their training in the academy. Where what we advocate is, hey, they're seated. You sat them there for a position of disadvantage, so you should handcuff them while they're in that position of disadvantage. So you go, uh, stay seated for me, and we'll go ahead and handcuff you.
Okay, that those are all pre-incident uh, things, and they will make your handcuffing technique much more successful. And that goes into all kinds of things uh, when it comes to real life. Okay, and of course that continues on when you're in your techniques as well. So that makes your handcuffing better, as I said. Um, something that non-law enforcement people might understand. We were going over this in the dojo the other day. Um, we are doing a micro drill where we were um, rolling. This is a kind of newaza sparring for those who don't know. Uh, ground fighting sparring, uh, live training, okay? And you want to specialize. You want to develop skills, right? You don't want a free-for-all. You don't want chaos. You're looking for a particular kind of spontaneity, in particular one that is reconciling yin and yang and one that is using the overall strategy of jujitsu, which is non-contestation. So we had this drill, and we have put a person inside control and the person that is inside control is going to attempt to climb the positional hierarchy into the mount or back mount or get some other type of submission or strike going on the person who is being side mounted. The person who is being side mounted is to reverse or sweep or get some other submission of their own kind. And then once one of them do that, you reset the drill so you get more uh, reps in addressing this part. Uh, of the training. Uh, you're always going to see that beginner. They learn to form. They learn how to go from side control to mount. Do you see that? Uh, they're always going to go straight ahead. Just like, okay, I'm going to put knee on belly and then I'm going to swing over and I'm going to get the mount. Because that was the technique they learned. They learned that. It's a very practical technique, knee on belly. Very practical. Side control, very, very practical. The difference is that the person is moving. And the administrative starting point for the training technique, and every training technique, the starting point of every training technique is an administrative starting point. It probably does not show up under real-life conditions. Okay? So in most cases, the person that you put knee on belly already countered the knee on belly. So there's no such thing as a knee on belly transition to the mount, not under, the, not under these life parameters. Um, so you'll have your better fighters. And what they will do is they will compound their efforts uh, in, towards seeking mount with other things. They're setting up dilemmas, in other words. So rather than going straight knee on belly, uh, they might use some arm isolation uh, attempts to distract away from the mount progress. Or they might use the mount progress to set up an arm isolation. Um, they might use an arm isolation to set up an arm trapping to create angles of attacks for elbows and punches and knees and things like that on the face. Uh, they might use pressure uh, to just get a person moving who was waiting for you to make the first committed move. Um, in other words, they, they're doing all of these things in an integrated way prior to actually accomplishing the thing that they want. Uh, those all go to pre-incident strategies, okay? And through those things, uh, when you can do them, 
you can easily go from uh, side control to mount um, the same way that the new officer who handcuffs a seated person, particularly using a two-man handcuffing technique, uh, addresses fights before they even happen and to such a degree that if they happen, they don't, they're not fights at all. They're futile struggles. And everyone is kept safe, and everyone goes home, and the inmate is fine, and the inmate and the or the suspect is fine, and everybody is good. Okay. All of these kind of things cannot be trained in a technique. They cannot be trained. If your dojo is interested in martial viability, it'll find other ways to bring these things into play. Um, but you cannot train them in a technique because that's not the point of the technique. You're going to need other types of mentoring, other types of transmission. And let's go on. Um, as I s just said, uh, very little of these things are ever addressed in Waza. At most, they are assumed in Waza but they are never spelled out for the user. And so Waza is not where they are best cultivated. In most dojo, they are absolutely non-existent. Members belonging to these dojo should not opine on self-defense matters. A simple one, if you're not doing strategy, if you have no concept of flanking and bounding and tactical repositioning and... and uh, um, any kind of pincer moves or high ground or footing, uh, any kind of uh, economic uh, management of risk mitigation, uh, you're not really doing self-defense. If all your self-defense is just waza training, practical techniques, uh, you're not doing it. Continuing. I believe all this to be lost on most Aikidoka, and especially those folks that do not train. This is why they see a video and ask themselves, will this work? Instead, they should ask, what skills are being demonstrated and cultivated? If they want to see what will work, my agency is hiring. I change the subject here. A short word on the jailhouse knife attack. The jail stabbing is generally a form of social violence and not a form of asocial violence. And this is not often understood. Uh, if you haven't worked in a custodial facility, you would not know this. Meaning, it is a kind of communication aimed at or reflecting a kind of social order. That is its primary purpose, not the killing of another human being. Um... Now, if you haven't worked in a custodial facility and the average Aikido population probably hasn't, um, probably hasn't even been in a jail. Uh, you, jail people are scary to you. Uh, they, you don't want to say that. You don't want to admit it. Um, but they scare you. That's why we talk about the jailhouse knife attack instead of just this knife attack. We're making it extra scary. Um, 
for those who don't know, and this is going to be very general, and you might find it interesting, and it will lend more support to what I go on to say. Um, the jails, the prisons are controlled by the uh, larger gangs in the state. And uh, you're not, you actually have these, these kind of rules that you're given uh, when you get there. Uh, they are racially divided, um, but usually it is the Hispanic gangs that are running most of the show. Uh, they have a long history in controlling the custodial facilities, whether they are state or county. It, it doesn't matter. They're there. Uh, you get to your module, and you're given the rules. They're, they're written down uh, on a tiny piece of paper that they can hide. Uh, once, you, once you memorize all the rules, you're supposed to get rid of that piece of paper. And they govern everything from when you go to sleep, regardless of what the jail rules are, the actual facility rules are. You, you have your time when you go to sleep, your time when you wake up, your time when you stop talking, your time when you work out, the workouts you do, all of this kind of stuff. And somebody is in charge, and it's very hierarchical. And the idea that uh, you can go off and just start attacking someone, let alone kill them, uh, no, that is not. Usually somebody up high is uh, wanting a message, and this is what makes it social. They use violence as their messaging, um, and they um, calculate what the repercussions are for that messaging. And they certainly don't want um, their modules to be uh, upheaved over and over again, uh, which custodial staffs will do uh, because they've gone too far in how much control they're trying to assert within the facility. So there's a lot of, you, this is how we all do it, and don't do anything outside of our order because you might bring more unwanted attention to us than, we, than any of us want. Um, not to say they don't have hits, but it's usually because that is the message. But your your shankings uh, is not of that nature. They're like, you, you broke some rules, so we're going to make sure you understand these rules. Um, and you'll have a much, much uh, greater repercussions if you're killing somebody in a custodial facility versus you are... Uh, battering someone or doing even assault with a deadly weapon versus homicide. Um, that said, there's also the nature of the tool. The tool is designed to be a message tool. So let me go into this a little bit. Um, the jail stabbing is generally a form of social violence and not a form of asocial violence meaning it is a kind of communication aimed at or reflecting a kind of social order, the one I just described to you. That is its primary purpose, not the killing of another human being. This is central to why it does not often represent or use the kind of territoriality, spinal displacement, or degree of penetration associated with asocial violence or knife attacks aimed at the killing of another human being. I bring this up here because many Aikido people, um, 
who talk about realistic attacks and you know they don't go with uh you shouldn't run they're not there yet uh but they really think that aikido's kionwaza are not practical because the jailhouse person doesn't attack with these thrust or these overhead attacks uh, but again, if you don't think of it culturally and you just think of it tactically or mechanically, they are doing different things, okay? If I am trying to kill you and I'm doing asocial violence, you actually see these very penetrating strikes uh, and weapons capable of, uh, or weapons whose penetration uh, would be lethal, and that is not the jailhouse, the so-called jailhouse shank. You will see more ski. You will see more shomenuchi. You will see the yokome. It does, they do it all the time. All the time. Additionally, or concurrently, the weapons themselves are geared toward this primary social purpose in the jail and thus are, for the most part, incapable of attacking in a way more common to asocial violence. Most shanks are flimsy, fragile, disposable, one-time-use weapons approximately one to two inches in blade length. They poke holes more than they do anything else. It is this design that makes it so serviceable to these sewing machine attacks. Compare this to the six-inch blade a trained knife fighter holds at a minim as the minimum length for practicality and lethality. So that's a conventional wisdom in knife fighting, six inches. It's six inches because you will hit an organ uh, with a six-inch blade. Equally, however, try to do a sewing machine attack with this six-inch blade balanced between cutting and stabbing performance, and it's not going to happen. Knives of this lethality create vacuums in the body at the wound site, and they get stuck in bone. It makes it difficult to pull out. That said, inmates stabbed multiple times in custodial settings with shanks are often up and about in a relatively quick time whereas a person suffering one stab from a six-inch blade does not tend to recover so well. Go figure. On the question of self-defense, the martial defending of your person by, by your person against the assault and or battery from another person, said defense should consist of interdependent and overlapping armed and unarmed fighting systems or groups of tactics. The two major groups of tactics, armed and unarmed, should also be further overlapped and made interdependent within their own armed or unarmed categories, meaning as much as one's arms tactics should support and be supported by one's unarmed tactics and vice versa, a single weapon should support and be supported by another weapon, and strikes and takedowns, etc., should support and be supported by each other. This goes back to how I was saying uh, you want to try to go from side control to mount, you're going to uh, have this 
mutually supporting relationship between neon belly, the positional hierarchy, arm isolations, arm attacks, chokes, strikes, arm traps, all that stuff is what makes it all work, not just the move going on. The Aikikai-based or derived Kihonwaza curriculum does not meet the above-mentioned criteria in and of itself. This is a result of its socio-historical self-imposed and arbitrary limitations, but it is also the result of its inherent design and purpose, meaning Aikido-waza does not function through or for the sake of a self-defense problem. Aikido Kihonwaza is not seeking self-defense solutions directly through a one-to-one -one ratio, an if-then modality of thought and practice. The if-then training paradigm was rightly rejected by earlier warrior cultures as incapable of leading to performance in battle, though today, out of ignorance, it has, it has mainly for marketing um, reasons become once again unproblematic for the simpleton that is the modern martial artist. Again, you can see I'm very critical of this view. This is not how to bring martiality uh, back to Aikido, how to solve its martial crisis. This is a mistake in the wrong direction. What we should do instead is figure out how pre-modern people did it. We should figure out, we should look to understand the problem of form and the transcendence of form. We should grasp fully Shuhadi. We should understand the complex psychophysiological problem of learning and then transcending what is learned. Why try to come up with that all on our own? They had already solved for it. We need to do an archaeology of our own practice, our own art, to figure out what they did and then do it. Going on. Nevertheless, Aikido can easily play an elemental but major role in the type of self-defense defined above. In fact, in addition to its mid-range locks, pins, and throws. So here I am going to talk about understanding Aikido's kihon, like the moves you see in its kihon, although I already said you should find the conceptual thread amongst all of the kihon that goes beyond the kihon, okay? But even in the kihon itself, if you, if you get beyond this scenario, like a guy grabs my wrist and I do ikkyo on him. If you get past that and you just look at the conceptual thread contained therein, okay? It's mid-range locks, pins, and throws, the art's other tactical aspects, such as its grip counters and its weapon disarms and retentions, as well as the art's strategic aspects, such as the strategy of non-contention and its battlefield strategic geometries addressing multiple attackers, as well as the art's mechanical advantages derived from its spiraling, rotating cross technical architectures and its internal reconciliation of opposing energies. Aikido really should be a part of everyone's overall self-defense system. For wherever you see Aikido absent from a self-defense system, understood as this conceptual thread, you see its tactical and strategic advantages gone as well. As a result, those proposed tactics 
often antithetically rely on size, strength, and speed resting with the defender, and strategic shortcomings often require a severe and artificial reduction of the environment, such that no one is armed or only one opponent attacks at a time. This crisis, I think, is important for us to address. Not, not even necessarily in the sense to settle it and to figure it out, um, but it does appear that we simply cannot do a business as usual. The art is or has, is losing or has lost its functionality. Um, it is suffering a demographic um, homogeneity and a massive reduction in new members. And if these things are not addressed, or not at least attempted to be addressed, you're looking at an art that will become extinct. You're looking at something that disappears because it is already disappearing. This concludes this episode of Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. For more information, please visit sentiencenter.com, S-E-N-S-H-I-N-C-E-N-T-E-R.com, or find us at Facebook at Sension Center, and on our YouTube channel at Sension One. Thank you for listening.